We're facing two global crises. We have scientific evidence for how to deal with both of them, but governments aren't acting quickly enough. They both show how we are all more connected than we previously thought. And to tackle them will require massive changes in how we run our economy. The first problem is COVID-19. The other, though it's fallen off the front pages, is as urgent as ever, the climate crisis. There's about a 20% chance that we could see temperatures of 1.5 degrees warmer or more in at least one of the next five years. We don't think we've had CO2 levels this high for about five million years. So we really don't know what to expect into the future. They describe the Siberian heatwave as unequivocal evidence of the influence of human-induced climate change on the planet. So how do we keep climate in the picture? Should we bail out struggling, polluting industries? And how can we make sure our COVID recovery is green? We have an opportunity to match the solutions for societal revival, to be sustainable, to to create a future that we all can uh, live even after this pandemic. We should be bailing out workers and not bailing out billionaires who live in tax havens. If we're not careful, we're going to come out of this crisis with an economy where only the real, the biggest and the strongest are surviving. And that applies to businesses as much as it applies to people. It's about a choice whether you choose to invest in the kind of solutions that will tackle climate change or invest in the solutions that were making the problem worse. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking how we can emerge from this recession and tackle the climate crisis at the same time. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by Chaitanya Kumar, Head of Environment and the Green Transition at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Chatty. Hi, Aisha. Nice to be on the pod. Thanks for being with us. And we're also joined by Fatima Zara Ibrahim, co-director of Green New Deal UK. Hi, Fatima. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me. Great to have you both. Okay, so let's start with the big picture. As you just heard, it's not uncommon for campaigners to draw attention to the similarities between the COVID crisis that we're currently facing and the climate crisis. Do you think that these similarities are meaningful? Let's start with you, Fatima. Yeah, I do think the similarities are meaningful and maybe for the first time ever tangible and relatable to our everyday lives. I think during this pandemic, at least in my experience, having conversations with my neighbours and my family about our economy and our society and how it's run, what we centre, what we actually need and how that is driving the climate crisis and how the inequality at the heart of our economy is something that's making us vulnerable. You know, I hate to use that sort of cliche saying, but as a society, we're as weak as the weakest person in our society. And the coronavirus has shown us that, that it's the communities that have been left behind, the infrastructure and our public services that we have neglected. And I mean, our government has neglected, have made us more vulnerable to the coronavirus. And unless we are able to change this and reevaluate, it will also make us vulnerable to the climate crisis. And it is sort of driving the climate crisis the way that we have ordered our society. Mm. Chatty, do you agree? And what would you say are kind of, I guess, the key differences between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis? And it seems like a bit of a silly question, but if you could kind of draw them out in relation to what Fatima was just saying. Yeah. Firstly, echoing a lot of what Fatima's mentioned, it does feel like a watershed and a lot of things, the way we sort of 
structure ourselves, organize ourselves, govern ourselves could significantly change if we do decide to take this crisis and, and the fallout seriously. As a, someone who's sort of quite geeky about policy, I just want to speak about one thing that has fascinated me through the entire crisis of the last five months or so is the challenge of collective action. Both climate and COVID are distinctly challenges that require us collectively as a society to have a response. It's not just government doing policy, which is important, but also how people and how society, how citizenry responds to that as well. That's been fascinating, just looking at the debates of like wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, how quickly politicized and polarized we become on these issues and climate sort of risks being in, in a similar basket. But in terms of differences, I suppose the major difference is the rather obvious one, which is climate, for better or worse, is COVID on a slow burn, essentially. We are seeing the impacts, but the challenge is we're not seeing impacts that just come all in once and culminate in like one big bang. They're happening uh, more frequently, yes, they're happening more severely in terms of weather impacts, but there's enough of a gap between each that we sort of go back to business as usual and then only try and react when something extreme happens. And I think that is a problem and that might actually challenge the way we respond to climate, even though there are a lot of similarities, which Fatima touched on. Okay, so in terms of the lessons, I guess, that we can learn in this moment, we've seen governments mobilise, often too slowly, but mobilise nonetheless to change the economy almost overnight to protect public health in the wake of COVID. Do you all think that this is a game changer in terms of rewiring the economy to get to net zero carbon emissions? Does it show that it can be done? I think it could be. And that's the challenge we face. I feel like there is a period of time that we have in order to sort of lock in the learnings from the pandemic. I think there's a few things, lessons that we can take. Um, One, listening to science. I think one of the things that has become quite obvious to me and maybe something I wasn't aware of is that scientists have been telling us that we are walking into a pandemic and that we are due to have a pandemic and governments around the world didn't listen to scientists. That's quite similar with the climate crisis. Scientists have been telling us for decades what it is that we need to do. Just a month ago, the government's own Committee on Climate Change reported back that the government wasn't doing enough and that it needed to use the recovery from this pandemic as a springboard to build back better and to take us towards sort of a low-carbon economy. The other thing in terms of lesson learning is for our communities, what organized communities are able to do I think there's some wonderful stories about from workforces that have taken on the ventilator challenge that the government put out, that it was the workplaces that were unionized, that had strong organization in their communities, that were rapidly able to change what it is they were producing and put it towards a public good. And what we need is the government to redefine the public good and center it in a low carbon economy. The labor forces there, our communities are now better organized. We just now collectively need to center this transition to a low carbon economy. And I think the big sort of paradigm shift that needs to happen on an economic level is we have an economic system that doesn't encourage intervention from the government until it is too late. And this sort of movement from government where they've acted and, you know, put public health as a priority is amazing, but it in many ways was too late. If we had a government that was centering public health for the past decade, maybe we wouldn't have been hit so severely by this pandemic. 
And now what we needed is a government that centers intervention, that is thinking long term, is thinking about the climate crisis and what it could be doing to help move us beyond fossil fuels. Chatty, mm, what do you reckon? Are you positive about what this means? I'd like to be positive, yes. Uh, I think the green recovery narrative is quite embedded. Uh, but of course, how we act on it is a million dollar question, isn't it? What I see that is missing in the narrative around build back better or green recovery is those bits around sort of climate justice, just transition, things like that. We will see more money for green technologies. We will see more money for fanciful technologies. If you have Dominic Cummings in number 10, I suppose you will. More money for industry and supply chains and things like that. But it might still be doing things the same way, but with a few cleaner ways of producing and consuming the same thing. So I think that's my concern. I'm optimistic about the green recovery bits, but uh, I'm worried about certain things falling through the cracks, which are as important, if not more, when you think of the transition from COVID. Okay, great. We're going to circle back to those concerns about the New Deal plan uh, in a short while. But let's talk a bit more explicitly about Green New Deal and what it is and what we're talking about when we say that. So as a result of COVID, obviously, we're staring down the barrel of a recession with huge unemployment levels. We've talked about it a lot on the pod in recent weeks. Fatima, you work with Green New Deal UK. Can you tell us briefly what a Green New Deal means and what it has to do with unemployment? So the Green New Deal is based on this sort of government mobilization that happened in the U.S. in the 1930s when the then President Franklin D. Roosevelt was sort of coming into office with two crises staring him in the face, a Great Depression, so an economic crisis, and the Dust Bowl, which was an ecological crisis, not dissimilar from what we're facing now. Um, And there was mass unemployment. And one of the things he did was sort of put people back to work restoring the natural environment. And that's where the jobs piece comes in, is that we can create an economy where we thrive, where we center well-being and reduce our carbon emissions and create jobs. There isn't a lack of work to do. What we need is a government that puts people to work, and that's where the job creation comes in. And the government seems to have picked up pieces of that. Most people will have heard sort of the New Deal speech from Boris earlier in the month, Boris sort of appropriating the Franklin D. Roosevelt language and, you know, saying jobs, jobs, jobs. What the government is committing in terms of money is just such a small fraction. Um, It's not going to create the level of jobs we need. But in terms of rhetoric, we are moving sort of towards that direction of linking the idea of a jobs creation and stimulating the economy whilst decarbonizing it. And, you know, when I say there isn't a lack of jobs, in order for us to transition to the low carbon economy, we need new energy sources, we need homes that are retrofitted. I mean, a retrofitting home scheme could create thousands of jobs in every constituency. We need to change the way our transport systems work. And the government is putting billions into road building, but instead we should be putting that into clean vehicles and electric charging points and cycleways and wider pavements. And then we also need jobs in supporting nature to thrive and uh, rehabilitating our natural carbon sinks. And that's what we are calling for in terms of a investment in green jobs that puts people into work, into the low carbon economy. Another element of that is like giving people the skills to do that. And there needs to be a training element of this. There was a report out that said there was a massive deficit in the UK in terms of the skills needed for us to transition to a low carbon economy. And that's another thing the government should be doing is giving people the skills, particularly the people who 
will be left unemployed after the furlough scheme ends to take up these new jobs to help us sort of deal with the climate crisis. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, what that could look like or what I guess the government's suggestion is for it to look like in a second. But for now, I wanted to talk about how what you just mentioned, Fatima, might impact different parts of the country differently. I'm not sure who's best placed to answer it. One of the things I was wondering about is, as you say, there needs to be new jobs in green industry and a phasing out of jobs in fossil fuel industries. But some areas, obviously, like the Midlands, have large concentrations of industrial jobs. So how do you think that this kind of transition would impact in different parts of the UK? Are we likely to see certain hotspots of jobs? Will other areas kind of be left behind? Like, what do you both think about how this could impact nationally? Um, I can go first. NEF is working in the Humber and Yorkshire region with some of the local groups there, including the unions. And it's a very good case study of the kind of impact we're seeing. Roughly one in 10 jobs in that region is in a high carbon intensive industry. So be it tracks uh, that produces electricity from coal and biomass, be it CMEX, that is one of the largest cement producers, be it Siemens, which is you know one of the wind power generators, things like that. So it's a heavy industrial cluster. And the kind of job losses we're seeing is quite dramatic. I think the latest numbers that we heard from the local enterprise partnership were anywhere between 10 to 15%. And that is the conservative estimate of the number of labor force that are currently on furlough to be made redundant. So we're talking tens of thousands of people potentially left jobless as a result of COVID-19. So that is a significant, not just job loss, but also like skill sets and capacity to sort of reinvent and reinvigorate the industries there. We're losing a lot of that. And how does government support those regions is going to be quite critical. A lot of them, when we speak to them, are very much important to this idea of a green recovery. They want to see hydrogen production. They want to see carbon capture and storage. They want to see technology supporting them in helping them transition out of fossil fuels. So that intention is very much there. But do we have the investment from national government? That's where it needs to come from. Do we have that investment? And do we have the program, which Fatifa mentioned, around uh, skills and retraining, FE colleges and apprenticeships and things like that? would be quite critical. And just another quick element of this, which is, again, from a regional point of view, is quite critical, is a lot of these jobs are within a demographic of about the age of 50. It is difficult to expect, for instance, that if you want to have a national tree planting program, that you would suddenly have uh, a lot of 50-year-olds, 55-year-olds being repurposed or rethought of as working in those sectors. You know, So there is a lot more nuance in thinking about retraining, reskilling, it's not as easy as just saying someone who's worked in a certain sector for decades uh, to basically say, oh, let's just switch jobs altogether. So there is lots of elements around well-paying jobs, jobs that can retain some of the skill set, but perhaps put into better use or different use in terms of cleaning our industry and our economy. But all of these have solutions. But what we need is a more focused and targeted program from the national government. Mm. So as is the case for many of the issues we discuss on the podcast, we need a slightly more holistic approach. Fatima, what do you reckon on that question of the national impact? Is this going to be another kind of coal mine closure situation, which obviously damaged local economies for decades? Or is this going to maybe repair some of that damage? Again, I think with everything, is there's a choice, and it, it's going to require some of that holistic thinking that both of you have mentioned. But I see the green recovery as compatible with the leveling up strategy that the government is talking about. Many of the things that I outlined before are jobs that are going to be required everywhere. We're going to require retrofitting in every constituency. We're going to require 
extending the broadband networks everywhere. We're going to require electrical vehicle charging networks everywhere, cycling, pedestrian areas, more trees. And then in terms of industry, yes, I think there's some planning there to make sure that we're delivering these jobs programs and um, employment benefits to the parts of the country that have been left behind, that haven't sort of received the investment that they've required. But I'm optimistic about this because there's a universal benefit in us moving towards a low carbon economy and the opportunities that it can give to people on a local level. And when we talk about jobs, I think what we can't talk about, and I think as people who are involved in the green movement can quite often become obsessed with technology and industry, but the low carbon economy is also education, it's care, it's the people who are already doing jobs that aren't energy intensive. And often those jobs aren't valued and aren't being invested in. So what would it look like if our government was putting more money into the education sector? What would it look like if the government was giving the NHS the right amount of money uh, to employ the level of workers it needed? Those are the type of industries that are already employing people up and down the country. And that could be creating more jobs if they receive the investment necessary. Mm, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Because as you say, I feel like when you talk about green jobs, the first thing that gets uploaded into most people's brains is tech and kind of new industry. When in fact, exactly as you've pointed out, a, a lot of the other jobs, you know, caring, education, etc., really would fit into that. And perhaps if the investment was there, it would also start to address a lot of the other problems we discuss on the podcast. Interesting. Okay, so let's focus in a little bit on what the government has actually done in the past few months or said they're going to do. So they've announced something that they call a new deal, which includes a green jobs program centered around retrofitting housing, which has obviously come up a couple of times on the call already. So Chatty, can you explain what that means, kind of the retrofitting piece specifically, but the broader new deal offer from the government? And if it's a good thing, because, you know, I've heard some people say it's a good thing on paper, they're making the right steps. What do you reckon? Yes, uh, I think the new deal approach is the right approach. I think that it just signifies at least the scale of intervention that we need to see from government, which is unprecedented for a conservative government, but nonetheless, that's what the current situation and crisis demands. But FDR had a much bigger economic stimulus. I think the numbers suggest that about 40% of GDP back in the 30s in the US, in the UK currently, based on recent announcements, I think it's about less than half a percent of GDP. So this pretty bonkers in terms of the scale of investment that we still need to see. So calling it a new deal is good from a narrative point of view, but the numbers don't really match up. Having said that, on the retrofit piece uh, is, is the one piece that we've heard some fairly chunky investment. I think about £3 billion was announced a month ago. The program of investment has just been announced yesterday, in fact, on the retrofits. It's called the Green Homes Grant. And the idea is fairly straightforward, which is if you deem your home to be not as energy efficient as it ought to be, or as you think it needs to be, if it needs some energy efficiency work, you're basically eligible to receive vouchers from the government uh, up to a value of £5,000. And if you are a low-income household, then you're entitled to a voucher that can potentially be up to £10,000. And that can have cavity wall insulations or solid wall insulations, putting up a heat pump potentially in your home or double glazing, for instance, or triple glazing in some instances. So that's a good thing. We've got one of the leakiest, draftiest homes in Europe. UK is called uh, the cold man of Europe for a reason, because we just have very, very cold homes. So in that sense, from a fuel poverty point of view, from an efficiency point of view, and more importantly, I think, and this is the reason why I believe 
the government focused on this investment and not other green uh, investments at this stage is the jobs. There are a lot of shovel-ready efficiency projects across the country. 70% of the green jobs in the country right now, today, are actually in the energy efficiency space. So if you've got the supply chains to be able to deliver a lot of this program over the next eight, nine months, and that's the reason. So it's a good thing. The scale of investment needs to be much higher, but my sense is that they want to test it out, see how the program actually evolves, how it's delivered, and if it's delivering good results, both in terms of jobs and also in terms of carbon reductions and warmer homes as we approach winter, that's a win-win-win, and hopefully that will lead to further investment in the future. So, so again, a cautious thumbs up uh, for the initial step. But like I said at the very beginning, it's a pittance compared to the scale of investment we actually need to see in the economy. Mm, cautious thumbs up. Fatima, what, what do you reckon? How cautious are your thumbs on the government's plans? And are there any other areas kind of like retrofitting that you would say there's been not enough investment here? This is something we should be focusing on. Yeah, I'm with Chatty. I mean, I am cautious because... What the government is doing, and I think is worth sort of highlighting and crediting, is that they're investing in the right part of the economy, as Chatty said, but they're not doing it at the scale that's necessary. And worse still, on one hand, they're investing sort of $3 billion in one year in retrofitting, but they're dedicating $27 billion to expanding the road networks. And I think that's where the frustration lies, is that for every sort of thing that they give, they're taking tenfold back with the other hand. and. Our role, I think, as campaigners and as policy people is to be very nuanced in our critique of the government. We are in a situation where our ideas are being picked up, particularly in rhetoric. I mean, I wouldn't fault the rhetoric, but in the details, it's where they're completely gutting what it is that we're campaigning for. You know, they've made similar sort of positive announcements in expanding cycle networks and making communities more walkable, which people are applauding, um, schemes to allow sort of people's bike riding to be easier and to maintain their bikes. I mean, these are really great efforts. And I think what we'll see over the next year is more and more of our ideas being picked up. The challenge will be to hold them accountable for the scale that we're demanding and to be able to communicate where the government is falling short in terms of the specifics to the public. Okay. Okay. So in the last podcast, Miriam Brett from Commonwealth spoke a little bit about using tax to tackle the climate crisis and our COVID recovery. Chatty, what do you reckon about a new green tax system? What might that look like? Would that begin to fix some of the um, problems that we've been discussing? Taxes definitely have potential. I can cite a couple of examples where they've been effective. Take carbon taxes uh, in the UK economy over the last decade particularly in the power sector, they've been quite instrumental in driving off coal from our system. It has to have been tandem with other things. So if you just had a carbon tax, did not have support for renewable energy, we might not have seen coal coming off the system as quickly. So it's a mix of taxes with complementary policies. It's always that. It's very critical to remember. It's never just about tax. And a second example, which I've only seen headlines, which to me felt quite, is this really true? But the 5P charge that is on plastic bags, uh, primarily when you go to a supermarket, since 2015, apparently that has resulted in 90% cut in plastic bag usage in supermarkets. I find that hard to believe, but that's the number. And that's, again, an example of like a small surcharge, a small tax, uh, the consumer end that can have potential positive impacts. At the same time, there are examples where 
it can have unintended consequences or negative impacts. A very good example of that, which gets cited quite often, is fuel duty. Essentially, the tax that you pay on the fuel you buy at the petrol station. Uh, over the last 20 years, the number of petrol-driven cars in the UK has fallen by about 10%, which one would say is a good thing. However, diesel car registrations have actually gone up by 400%, which isn't a good thing. So the, the reason behind that is back in 2001, we basically cut the duties or cut the tax on diesel. Back then, it was a good intention, with the intention of allowing people to move away from petrol, uh, which is causing more carbon, and move to diesel. The unintended consequences is air pollution. Now we have more air pollution because we inadvertently told people through the mechanism of tax that why don't you go replace your petrol car with a diesel car instead. And now we have to pull back and basically say, oh, hang on, we actually did the wrong thing. Please take away those diesel cars this time. So tax is very effective, but it has to be carefully thought through. And a green tax, you know, it can apply to different sectors. On fuel duty, it always has to be seen again as not just a tax, but tax along with complementary policy. So when we are taxing fuel, we understand that a lot of people, both from low-income households to otherwise, depend on fuel in their vehicles on a daily basis. And so there is a need to make sure that these taxes are progressive. What that means is the highest burden of the tax is falling on the highest income households, while the lowest burden is on the lowest income households. And there's a progression from low to high income households when it comes to tax. That's a very fundamental principle of taxing, and that needs to be embedded within fuel duty as well. Second is complementary policies, like I said, which is how do we support people to better utilize public transport, to better utilize active walking and cycling infrastructure, to better utilize other modes of transport that are opening up across the economy, allowing them to actually shift what we call modal shift away from private transport into more eco-friendly, sustainable modes of transport. Doing that is as important as taxing fuel in the economy. And the final thing I'd say is the two taxes that NEF is working closely on that we'd really be interested in the government considering closely. One is on fuel duty again. Uh, we've frozen the fuel duty for about 10 years in a row. That needs to give in. That needs to change. And the second is tax on aviation and shipping fuels. It can either be tax on the fuel itself, but also what is being dubbed the frequent flyer levy. So if you're someone who takes flights regularly for business, which isn't happening these days, I get that, but it's an interesting concept. But the aviation sector is in the doldrums as we speak. So whether that tax is required at this stage is up in the air. But once air travel resumes, there is tremendous scope for introducing uh, an aviation tax to curtail how much we pollute our air. Jess, I really hope that that was an intentional deadpan pun of whether or not the aviation tax is going to happen is up in the air. If so, <laughs> it was outstanding. Uh, I really appreciated that. Let's talk about bailouts then. You mentioned it then, and it's actually my next question. So businesses, lots of sectors have obviously been really hard hit by COVID, like travel and retail, and some companies have already received government money to keep them afloat. So a question for both of you, but I guess chatting in the first instance, as you you just mentioned it. Were there conditions attached to that money and other examples of what these bailouts kind of could and should look like? I think I wouldn't be wrong in saying if you are a rich Tory donor with a massive industry, then you probably have received a bailout or in the process of receiving a bailout without conditions. I think that's what's happened. 
so far. Some of the chemical industries that we see, BASF, I think was an example, which owns Monsanto, I think received about 800 million quid without many conditions. So there is a problem there. But there are interesting examples where bailouts could be a double-edged sword in the sense that, take the example of Port Talbot in Wales, which is a massive steel plant, which relies on burning a lot of coal in producing steel. What we hear is the government is actually interested in bailing Port Talbot out, but the condition is to actually green it, i.e. electrify it. So instead of using coal, use electricity, which is cleaner and cleaner every day. But the pushback is actually from the employees, from the unions, who are basically saying this will create job losses. We definitely don't want this to happen. So that's an interesting dilemma there where we need the transition to happen, but the people that we want to be part of this are not up for it. So it's not just about putting conditions, but also understanding the implications of those conditions and how do we mitigate those implications, particularly on workers and employees. We've also done analysis that was published just yesterday, looking at the Bank of England's asset purchase scheme and uh, some of the money that it's been pumping into the economy, whether inadvertently or otherwise, because the Bank of England has this ridiculous principle of market neutrality, which means it says it doesn't consider whether a thing is clean or dirty. It just is neutral to all of that. The result of that, unfortunately, is it's heavily biased towards carbon-intensive sectors. The report is very much live on our website. The story is the same here and in the US and other places, that this sort of support from the Bank of England is disproportionately going towards fossil fuels and the dirty industries instead of the cleaner ones. And I think that needs to change as well. Interesting. So the government managed to just slide through an £800 million little cheeky payout for their mates and no one knew about it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think the, the, this data is available, but surprisingly it doesn't get as much attention as it should, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think I'm safe in saying, or I think I'm making a safe assumption when I say if you're mates with the Tories in high places, then you've seen some of these examples play out. But if you're a small and medium enterprise uh, across the country, and if you're represented by these trade bodies, they haven't been able to cut through with government policy and get much out of government in terms of support. So if you're a large industry with large donations and large pockets, you're more assured of actually being able to fill those pockets with government money at this stage. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, Fatima, what do you reckon about bailouts? Should there be kind of specific conditions attached, you know, as as Chatty mentioned, along the lines of green recovery, green jobs? And another question I had for you was if a huge company or whatever, you know, the size of Virgin or whatever is bailed out, is it then essentially nationalized? Is that how that works? I mean, I wish that's how it worked. Um, Damn it! <laughs> and that's kind of, that's not how it's working, which is why it's um, incredibly problematic. I mean, I would sort of get people to check out, there was a really brilliant investigative report out today by Vice in what loans have sort of been given and how much shareholders of various companies have got. For example, EasyJet, which for all the reasons Chatty sort of outlined why the aviation industry is terrible, you know, gave out 174 million in dividends to its shareholders. And then a month later, accessed 600 million loan from the government on the low interest, which is outrageous. And I think in terms of sort of bailout conditions, some of the things the government should be doing is using this opportunity, A, to like, I'd say nationalize it, or at least get a public stake in these companies, because so much sort of public money is going into them. The other thing that we should be doing is putting conditions for these sectors or companies to have 
plans on decarbonizing. And I mean, that sounds really basic and simple, but I guess when you don't have a government who has a plan on how it's going to decarbonize our economy, why would they expect companies and sectors to do it too? But that's one of the things we should be ensuring is happening is having a plan on how they're going to reach net zero, having a stake in these companies so that we can support workers in transitioning and making sure that there are workers' rights in these industries and uh, they have plans to reskill their workers, that trade unions have access. There's a whole list of demands that the Build Back Better campaign has sort of put forward and encouraging people to contact their MPs about. But I think it's just outrageous that there really isn't any conditions and so much money has gone out the door without the public watching to sort of tether us further to the fossil fuel sector. And that's money that could have been used to stimulate a new economy. That's money that could have been used to force these sectors to start thinking about how they're going to transition. And that's a missed opportunity. But this money is still going out the door and there are companies who will be accessing public funds and it's not too late for us to be putting conditions um, and making sure there's a public stake in these bailouts. Wow. Okay. So we're almost there. I want to let you get back on with your lives uh, after this exciting deep dive into the green recovery. But we've talked about a lot of the different aspects of it. And as always on the Weekly Economics podcast, I also want us to talk about how we might get there. So the last time there was a recession in 2008, the climate crisis had been gaining lots of public attention, but the economic events knocked it off the front page. And you could potentially argue that we've seen a similar thing this time in the kind of surge of the climate movement last year and at the beginning of this year, and then it potentially being knocked off by COVID. Do you reckon that there's a danger of us kind of forgetting about climate altogether? And how do we keep it in the picture? Yeah, I I think there's always a danger. And that's why we're campaigners and advocates as we're constantly trying to keep it on the public agenda. But it's worth sort of recognizing that the work many of us have put into putting climate and climate justice as a priority is paying off. Last year, we saw this overwhelming amount of activism around climate change with the youth strikers and Extinction Rebellion. And that's a huge part of why the government is even using the words green and green recovery and building back better. We sort of laid the path towards this consensus that there is a climate emergency, that we can't afford another crisis this decade, and that we now have an opportunity to rethink how our economy works. Much of the challenge I think that existed for us is illustrating why the climate crisis was so bad and what would happen. The coronavirus has sort of done that. If we're worried about job losses and we're worried about people losing their lives and our communities being upended, we know we're on a path towards uh, three degrees of global heating and billions and millions of people will be affected in a much worse way than we have been affected through this pandemic. And I think people get that. I think fundamentally, you know, it shows in the polling that we've done only 6% of people want to go back to normal. And that's huge because it's only natural in a crisis to think about, hey, if only I could go back to yesterday, if only I could go back to normal things before this pandemic. And we've been able to accurately describe why normal wasn't working. And that shows in how the public has moved and how the government response has moved in a response to that, that they are making sure that in their rhetoric around recovery, that it's closely tethered 
to one that allows us to avoid climate catastrophe. Again, it's like the proof is in the pudding. The real challenge now that we have is to get beyond the rhetoric and to get to the specifics. And I'm optimistic. I really am. And I also think this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where we have a chance to rewire our economy. And why wouldn't we do it in this direction? And people have now tangibly felt, you know, we quite often talk about climate change has already hit for many people around the world. Many people in the UK don't know what a world of climate emergency will look like. They know what a pandemic has done now and the ravage it's sort of wreaked in our communities. And I think most people don't want to be facing that um, anytime soon and are ready sort of for the challenge of changing how our communities work and have seen the positives of a different way of our communities working, one that centers, you know, neighborliness and community spirit and us sort of doing things uh, that sustain our communities and not things that are about profit or polluting our environment. Okay, Chatty, I'm going to give you the final word. It's kind of same question, same question, but specifically, you know, Fatima mentioned it there, only 6% of the UK want to return to a pre-lockdown economy. How can we push this energy towards a green recovery, towards the things we've been talking about and make sure that we're really holding the government to account and making sure that their pledges are meaningful? Yeah, I think obviously Fatima put all of this quite eloquently in a couple of minutes. But before I respond to that specific question, there are two more things I wanted to add to that. One was, unlike 2007-8 and the resulting sort of pulling back from climate change and climate action, two things have changed quite dramatically the last decade. One is from the renewables story point of view. It's been a massive success and it's driving a lot of fossil fuels away from an economic standpoint. Uh, And the second, of course, is like one of the things coming out of COVID is companies, the big baddies of climate change, your Shells, your BPs and your Exxons and all of them are literally just underwriting massive amounts of assets and basically saying the assets are worthless now because we just don't see the need to develop these oil fields any longer, these gas fields any longer. Uh, I think that's a clear indication. And what that means ultimately is that it'll have a dent on their value and the investors are going to think, oh, these guys have been raising a lot of money, promising that these assets that they've been holding will actually be developed. Now they won't be developed any longer. And I think that means a lot that we're genuinely moving away, both as public, but also from an economic standpoint, we're moving away from fossil fuels, uh, just about pace. We just need to do it faster. And I think that's where sort of government action comes in. And how do you sort of hold government to account? I think for us as campaigners, activists, people working in the policy space is, look, you've been banging on about uh, the co-benefits, the wonderful things of clean growth, of clean energy and afforestation and lots of other things that we really want to see in the world. And we've been banging on about the benefits of it. Now it's literally about realizing them. It's about putting them in place and really seeing how do we tell a positive, hopeful story that out of this COVID crisis is actually something better it's hard to imagine uh, when I wake up first thing in the morning. These days, when you turn on the news, it's not a rosy picture. But we still have to sort of communicate that hard, that there is something better on the other side and get people along with us. And that's why this sort of green recovery, build back better is such an important thing to be central to what we're doing in our campaigning. 
Okay, Chatty and Fatima, that is all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for joining me and unpacking and explaining what is could be viewed as quite a complicated idea, but actually in the way that you've described is um, perhaps the simplest thing of all, which is let's not go back, let's go forward to something much better. Thank you so much. So Chatty, Kumar, thanks so much for joining me. Again, if people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? The New Economics Foundation. Just Google that and you will find me and a lot of Neff's work there. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And Fatima Zara Ibrahim, same question. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Yeah, check out Green New Deal UK. And then we're also running a campaign specific to the recovery called Build Back Better, which you should check out too. Awesome. That's it for today's weekly economics podcast. Lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, as always, please tell someone about it. You can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.